1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. This is your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Angela Rudert. She is a visiting assistant professor in the religion department at Colgate University in New York. We'll be speaking, of course, on her book, Shakti's New Voice, Guru Devotion in a Woman-Led Spiritual Movement. Hello, Angela, and welcome to the program.
0: Hello, Raj. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure. So how did you end up um, hearing Shakti's New Voice or amplify Shakti's new voice, as it were. Um,
0: let's see, I, I, had a, I had a project in mind um, when I was working on my PhD, and I had, was looking at three female gurus. Um, but only one of the three spoke Hindi language, and Hindi language was this language I had been studying. Um, so I decided to search around for another. <laughs> Another Hindi-speaking guru, and um, and so I did a Google search, and I'm trying to remember what my search terms were. I think they were um, women's empowerment. Um, I had I had a research question. I wanted to know if you know following a female guru might in some way empower women differently than having a male guru. Um, and so I was actually looking up, googling the words women's empowerment, Hindi language guru. Um, I don't remember, maybe another search term thrown in there. And, um, and she came up on the first hit. (laughs) So I used to be embarrassed to say, uh, that I found my project in the Google search, but now I really, I mean, you know, back in 2006, when I first discovered her, it was a little bit embarrassing to tell my committee, Oh yeah. So I found this person on the internet. Um, but when I actually got to the field, uh, her tech team, the guru's tech team, sort of these techie devotees she has, mostly in their 20s, who have some IT training background um, and work for her sort of on the ground doing her media um, representation. Um, when I told them how I found her, you know, they just like fist pumped each other. They were so excited because their <laughs> keywords that they had apparently placed in her website were um successful <laughs> drawing so um so that was that's one way um many of the gurus devotees who i um who i met in my research insisted that she had called me there bulaya you know that i was called to the guru that no one comes within her orbit without being called there and i'm saying no 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 i've been researching gurus for 10 years i wrote this you know i got a grant to come here i'm here on research no no you were called here so yeah, so I had it, sort of those two kind of reactions within the Guru's ashram um, as to how I had heard her voice. But anyway, I did. I actually met her just two weeks after I had found her by Google because she was planning to be in Hudson Valley, New York. So I met her there.
1: So there are, there are many fascinating things that you've already said about your project. Uh, first of all, um, I have learned in the last four years um, – Entrepreneuring that Google is the guru of the modern age. <laughs> yeah. We all go to this great uh, technological guru for guidance about everything in life. Um, and so, unsurprisingly, uh, the guru that is Google has led you to this. This guru was a project of yours. Now, this so your book is about a figure. Um, so, say a little bit, a tiny bit about your data. For example, you're not studying an ancient Sanskrit text. You're not studying a ritual necessarily. You know, say a little bit about what it is that's constituting what you're studying, and then um, I was so so tempted to dive right into that question right at the outset. Is um, is the fact that this guru is female? Um, does that impact uh, female disciples in a certain way or not? That is obviously a really important question but I'm going to resist <laughs> okay. resist diving into that. Tell us a little bit about your, your methodology first.
0: Okay. Um, so, you know, as I said, I had been studying gurus for quite a while and studying female gurus in particular. Um, and I did ethnographic field work in her ashram. That was my, my primary methodology was ethnography. Um, I also did some ethnographic field work in the United States. um, I went to one of her meditation retreats in Florida. I went to several different places in the Northeast when she was in town and met with her and saw some of her larger public programs um, here in the US. Uh, But most of the research was done in North India and in her ashram, which is in Ganur, Haryana. And then um, I also traveled out from the ashram all over India meeting with disciples whom I had met either in her public programs in various parts of India or the people I had met in her ashram. So I I would say, I guess my primary text is her um, or her words <laughs> and, um, and then her devotees words, because I, you know, once I got into the field situation, a lot of my research questions changed, as often happens in ethnographic work.
1: You know, in my view, whether you're studying text or, or, or people, if the, the data, especially in South Asia, in my opinion, if the data you encounter doesn't occasion you to refine your, your theory or your method or your question, then you're not really processing the data directly. <laughs> yeah. The data should jar you in some way to the point of needing to innovate, um, how you're looking at it, in, in my view. So it's interesting you say that as well. Um, what, so tell us, let's go, let's go to the grand question of whether or not a female guru <laughs> impacts um, uh, uh, discipleship, female discipleship. Um, what are your findings in this case study?
0: say yes and no you know initially you know when i would ask women this question um and i even asked men what does it mean for you to follow a female guru um
1: and just sorry just for the sake of our our listenership for those who may not have read the book but may be interested in it does this figure have a co-ed discipleship
0: have a what I'm
1: does sorry. she have a co-ed discipleship does she have males she, and females? Uh,
0: she has yes she has men and women who follow her who are her disciples and who live in her ashram, but then also, so she has a core of people who live right in her ashram, who I refer to in the book as ashramites, because that's the way they refer to themselves. And um, and then a number of people who come to her ashram, which is actually a large sprawling ashram um, that can hold up to 500 or maybe now more people at a time. So when she has a public program in her ashram, you know, many more people come. Um, yeah, so I interviewed um, men and women, and by and large, most people would say that her gender was irrelevant, that she was an enlightened guru, a self-realized guru, and that the self is not gendered, and therefore, what does it matter? They're intera- when they interact with her, they're interacting with the self. And so, um, so that was one answer. Um, but later in the research, I also, um, asked, um, I had a small group of women and there were, it was more chatting, less interview like, and one of the women, and then after I'm getting the same sort of genderless guru answer, one of the women in that group said to me, well, you know, I did get to go to a 30 day retreat in her ashram. And I couldn't even talk on the phone to my husband the whole 30 days or my in-laws or any family members. Um, So I have to ask myself, and this is the woman's words, you know, would I have been able to do that if my guru were a male? So there were some very practical logistical reasons, I think, in some ways that some women um, discovered that they had a little more freedom to be in her ashram because she was a woman. Um, that there was less of a fear factor for their families that, you know, she might be taken advantage of in some way or other. Um, And so there was that. And then I also thought at the same time, you know, there I was um, in, during that particular time, I was in India without either of my children in the research stint where I was completely solo um, or a free bird as people called me. And, um, and I realized that, you know, (laughs) <laughs> that maybe there are people in my life too who also felt reassured that the guru who I was spending all of this time away from my family with was also a woman. So there, and, and then I actually come back to upstate New York and a woman here in upstate New York contacted me because she knew I was writing about her guru and we became friends and started to, started to talk with one another. And one time she said, Oh, I specifically looked for a female guru because I knew this was going to take a lot of my time and that I needed to be with a woman. So, so yeah, I, so it's sort of a yes and a no, but that, but because I think at first I was, um, when I asked my question, does it empower you anymore to have a female guru or does it, how does her gender affect, you know, your relationship? And the answer was always, Oh, she's beyond gender. Um, I kind of gave up that question or almost gave it up, but it wasn't the driving question in the book. I think once I got into the field, um, what I was more um, interested in and what I saw around me more was the devotion. And I wanted to understand Guru Bhakti better. And so um, you know, I do look at her gender. I do look at other things that I went into the research with. I was interested in how she reaches out to people. How does she attract people to her? But I I wasn't actually thinking of attraction in sort of this cosmic way, like she drew you here. <laughs> she, um, I was thinking of, you know, how does she attract people through her Internet media? And so while that's still part of the story, I had to take very seriously um, people's own understanding of their devotion and the other forces that draw people into the Guru's Buddha field, as they were referring to it, or her orbit. You
1: mentioned that uh, bifurcation between um, sort of practical, mundane attraction and cosmic, psychic, spiritual attraction. You mentioned that at the very outset, and maybe you can say a little bit about um, how you answered both of those. Well, the, the first part in terms of, you know, how do people find her in a practical mundane sense? How are they attracted to her? Um, and, and perhaps you can also comment on your new understanding of, of, of the inner attraction that people feel to be part of that, um, to be part of that draw.
0: Um, okay, thanks. Yeah, I, um, in the practical sense many people discovered her through, at least in the Indian context, the majority of people I met discovered her through television. She has a satellite television show, and um, what is <laughs> her um, her right-hand man, who's been with her since she was 13 and first started teaching, um, that told me, you know, he's kind of in charge of that television show and has been producing it for, for a while, I think since around 2000. Um, and he told me we have no reruns (laughs) in all of these years um and so i said what really she's a no rerun guru um and it turns so every time she speaks and opens her mouth she's being recorded whether it's a small um private setting she's often there's often a small handheld recorder there any public setting her people are there with video cameras and everything. So, when she, whenever she talks, you know, the spinoffs of her praxis are what get produced um, as internet media and television media. Um, and so, so most people found her, at least in India, were finding her through satellite television. And there were a number of people who gave stories like, oh, you know, my auntie watches TV. She watches all those gurus on TV, but I heard this one's voice. There was definitely. Um, Uh, an almost like a magical quality to her voice for many of her devotees. There was this one really lovely story about a doctor in Amritsar who was eating dinner with his family and Guru Ma was some distance away, a couple of blocks away at a Gurdwara and she was singing there and he heard her voice and dropped his dinner and told his family he had to run back to the office, but went to the Gurdwara to find her singing um, another story about um, a man in Ludhiana who had heard her who somehow acquired a cassette tape, so in the beginning her her teachings were disseminated on cassettes and um, he heard this cassette tape and he searched for a full year to find out because it, the cassette tape wasn 't labeled whose voice this was that he was listening to um, because the voice was what attracted to him so um, or what attracted him to her. So there were a number of people who were attracted to her voice. They would hear her on television, but be in the other room, but want to come in and see who she was on TV or, um, or they discovered her through cassette tape or, you know, even just locally, you know, um, like the Amritzer doctor who left his dinner. So, and, and then at the same time I was also reading, um, content on her website um that writes about her and about the um the ashram and i was seeing the correlation there oftentimes in the ashram comparing people coming there as as being called like krishna like as the gopis called by krishna's flute so there's this um understanding of attraction as being related to what I call the call and response sort of this devotional or spiritual call and response, which is more the, not the more, the less practical material way of attraction and more, I guess, what we're calling for lack of a better word, like the cosmic sort of, um, attraction or karmic attraction, even between a teacher and a student.
1: Oh, what's, um, well, there's so many fascinating threads there. Um, you know, let's start with, uh, I think, the most obvious uh, um, sort of modern media, the Internet, TV shows. You know, on the one hand, how fascinating would it be to have every um, talk of um, Ananda Maima, a great female guru from the last century? Imagine having all of her talks right uh, on record for us to peer into her way of being, her read her body language, hear her wisdom, mm-hmm. uh, how fascinating would that be and it's 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 quite profound that in this day and age uh the life of anyone uh, much less uh, a great charismatic spiritual figure such as guruma can be recorded um and perhaps then um even call devotees yet to be born you know calling right. them to whatever her message is for example so so can you say a little bit about what you, what you learned about Uh, maybe what surprised you or or, or maybe a little bit about the devotee's uh, perspective of, of now that, now that the, the, the guru's message or presence can pervade modern media, particularly the internet.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So the media was what attracted me to her. Um, You know, that material, you know, here I am searching for a guru to write about and boom, she pops up through the internet and the number of her, U S devotees had found her by internet. I didn't say that before, but, um, the, the media really fascinated me. Her website at the time and her website has changed. There have been a number of different sort of incarnations of the way her website is presented, um, by her devotees, but I knew she had a cadre of, of professional people doing this, right? But they're a cadre of professional people who are doing it as seva, uh, or service to the guru. Um, I I got, so I was interested in mostly like tradition and innovation. My sort of one of my first impressions was that, you know, is she, our questions is, is she really doing something that other gurus in other time periods and contexts would not have done if they had had the ability to do it. And, um, and so I had to, you know, ask myself and think about, you know, 19th century Hindu reformers who used who made use of print media and pamphleteering um, and how important that was to getting messages out and and as I started thinking about it investigating I realized that you know really she is using what's in front of her and she still her objectives are still to get her message out to the most people that she can Um, so in a way she she's innovative with her embrace of new media like she's even embraced social media but i think you know if you're looking at gurus today they've they've almost all they've all jumped into this they're in social media um they they have expansive internet sites and youtube channels and things like that or even their own television station like matamrita nandamai so i i one thing i look at is and and i actually kind of come to the conclusion that you know, it is innovative, but they're not necessarily doing anything outside of the tradition of gurus in the past, either, who also used whatever media was available to them at their time to disseminate their message, and also to stay in touch with their followers. Um, And that second piece, that staying in touch and the connection with um, through media, became very important to me when I got pulled into what I call the production of her media myself. So, you know, as, as, a, as an ethnographer doing participant observation, you know, I typically did some sort of little um, Seva assignment in the ashram to, you know, to participate in that way, but also to contribute. I was living there for a long period of time. Um, and at one point, Guru Ma used to have this, um, this wonderful program called Live Chat. And she would actually, you know, sort of like we're doing now on the video, um, on the video screen, she would have um, a MacBook or something in front of her. And, and she would be looking at, at devotee, or devotees would be looking at her. And then there was at the same time this chat transcript that was happening. People would type in questions on the transcript and she would pick some of those questions and answer them live in the video camera for her devotees. And, um, and I, I was invited to witness one of these sessions, which she kept very closed because of, you know, sound issues and things like that. She had a very small group of people around her doing it. Um, and she had some of those techie disciples sitting around her feet on the stage where it was just in her, I guess, one of her regular places, auditoriums where she gives talks in the ashram. Um, and sitting around her feet, these techie disciples were typing in both English and Hindi, depending on the question that was asked and how it's answered, um, disciples questions. So Guru Ma would speak the words and they would type them at the same time. So they would come through on the transcript. And I was watching this um, happen and suddenly she just looks up and she looks at me and she says, Angela, you type well in English, I imagine. And then she makes a little nod to someone who knows exactly what she means by the little nod and runs off and comes back with another laptop. And she puts me right there at her feet, typing these transcripts, just the English. And, um, (laughs) and even that, even typing in my own native language was (laughs) so stressful in that situation. I mean, I, because it was, it was all happening very fast. So she would look, she would speak. And when she would speak and she would first nod at whichever typist she wanted to take over, the transcript and she would nod at me, and I would type furiously. Um, so, anyway, in that situation, she she actually praised my typing skills and, um, and started to criticize some of her other typists in and, and compa- and comparison. And, um, and so I got invited another time to do that. But what came out of that is I was then given a SEVA assignment. Of English typing. And so some of those transcripts that had been made on those small recorders in private, um, in more private Darshan settings and so forth, um, were handed to me and I would listen to them and type out the English. So that became my SEVA assignment for a while. Um, I had another SEVA assignment along with that where I was placed in her, um, in her bookstore. And um, and so I worked along with someone who knew what she was doing. Thankfully, in the bookstore, but that gave me the opportunity in the bookstore to see just how vast her media output is. There were cassette—I mean, there were cassette tapes still for sale because some people were still using cassette tapes at that time. But by and large, there were DVDs, VCDs, and CDs um, of uh, recordings of her talks on various things, but she also produces, um, you know, she also has a commercial music production company and she produces spiritual music of her, of her own. So she has these, these albums that she sells that are actually, you know, studio produced albums that she makes of music. And then she also has, you know, just the live recordings of her, of her work that are for sale. Um, actually very reasonably priced um, for the most part cheap, but I got to learn what exactly she's done. And I really was immersed in the media through that. And now I can't remember how we started the questions. Oh, it's,
1: it's quite all right. That's my job. <laughs> so uh, in, in my questioning after what you made of her um, internet presence and her multimedia, mm-hmm. um, uh, her multimedia, the, the multimedia expressions of her mission, you actually touched at the heart of the question, uh, which was the tension between tradition and innovation. Yeah. So I think you've answered- I
0: kind of started with that,
1: okay. I think that you've answered for us the ways in which uh, she's innovating in her medium, Um, but you seem to hint at the idea that this may not be uh, so, um, really, if, if Shankaracharya were alive today, he'd be using the internet. Yes. Right, <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> right? He, yeah. he, his, his, his devotees or if the souls are on the internet, then he would probably extend his reach to reach them there, right? Yes. So, yeah. so, so um, it's a fascinating point. Now, so can we stay on the idea, if you don't mind, of the tension between innovation and tradition and talk a little bit about uh, how can I phrase this? There's many ways. The extent to which, for example, she is uh, situated within the Hindu religious tradition oh, versus, versus yeah. the extent to which she innovates that. You can bring in either syncretism or pluralism if you wish, but yeah. there's obviously much to be said. So so let me just ask you very succinctly, yeah. what is the extent to which this uh, modern guru um, what is the extent to it? She operates within what you would call a Hindu religious paradigm. And to what extent, in your opinion, do you feel that she, she innovates that?
0: Yes, good. Good question. Um, well, she. I'll, I'll just start with a quick bit of background information about her. She was born into a Sikh family in Amritsar. Um, she was educated in a Catholic convent school in Amritsar. She, at one point, left her college schooling for what she called more pressing matters, which was her spiritual calling. And she left and went on a solo wandering trip around North India. Um, she, and, and, and during um, at some, and her devotees claim that she received her enlightenment in Vrindavana. So um So we have a lot of these, you know, we have, she's born Sikh, educated in a Christian convent school, stories about her upbringing. You know, there are stories um, that are told within her community about um, the Christian missionaries of her school trying to recruit her as a Christian because they recognized her spiritual acumen. Um, There are stories about um, Sikh teachers asking her, why don't you preach for the Sikhs? Why are you preaching to all these Hindus? Um, and she, she the response that I heard from the people who told me this story was that, you know, why, why would God limit the truth only to Sikhs? Um, this is for anyone. So, um, (laughs) but I, at the same time as you know, accepting the name guru obviously takes her out of the, of the Sikh paradigm as a teacher, um, and and in some ways places her in this Hindu religious paradigm um, of guru. Uh, at the same time, I would say she also sometimes she calls herself a Sufi. Her her disciples call her a Buddha um, as an enlightened one, like using that in the in the literal sense. Um, and she teaches across many of these traditions. Uh, drawing from lots of them. So one thing that I feel is that the teaching across traditions is something that gurus have done. That's not necessarily innovative to teach across traditions or teach even about another tradition, if there's a truth that you find applicable to your listeners. Um, And, you know, coming out of a tradition and a devotional sort of relationship that I think she has with Guru Nanak in particular, but other Sikh gurus as well. Um, you know, Nanak also came out of the river Bain and said, I'm not Hindu and I'm not Muslim. Um, and she sings the songs of the North Indian um, Hindi-Sant tradition and Punjabi. Uh, and so she sings songs as Nanak apparently did across traditions and um, And she refuses to be labeled as Hindu or Sikh. But, um, at, (laughs) so yes, I mean, I, at, you know, I have to listen to her if she's refusing to be labeled as Hindu, but at the same time, the vast majority of her listeners and followers do seem to be Hindu and identify themselves as Hindu. Um, but she has a really large number of followers who self identify as Sikh. Um, hairkeeping, not hairkeeping Sikhs. I mean, um, so kind of a, a lot, a cross-section actually. Um,
1: so, so yeah, um, I
0: guess, I guess that's answering your question, but she refuses that identification. Um,
1: so aside from the fact that she doesn't identify with, um, as a Hindu or Sikh and most of your followers identify as Hindu with probably a healthy Sikh contingent. Yeah. Um, What, aside from the mantle of Guru, what would you say about her mission or methodology would qualify as how we would think of as Hindu versus not?
0: Hmm.
1: For example, just for example, uh, does she initiate um, um, disciples into Sanskrit mantras, for example? does she not? Does she, you know... um, does she give darshana? Does she not? What? What? Irrespective of how she identifies, let's just say for the sake of argument that she's beyond the identity of a religious affiliation. Yes. But, but for 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 we mortals who are left yeah. in the conditioned world of affiliations, which of her practices and procedures um, could one possibly categorize as as part of the Hindu religious tradition? Would you say versus not?
0: Okay. Um. Thanks. It's a great question. Um, she, she does offer mantras, um, and she does offer what they call Diksha, um, or initiation, um, with these mantras. She usually does these in a massive group of people and she will give everyone mostly the same mantra, but she has also been known to give people individual mantras and, you know, some of her Sikh devotees, um, for instance, think of the Mool Mantra, the first verse in the Guru Granth Sahib, as their mantra, as their Guru Mantra, Um, whereas others, yeah, I would say the mantra is quite important. I even had one devotee tell me, oh, having the Guru's Mantra is like having the Guru's phone number, right? This is how you make the connection um, with the Guru. So that, I think that in terms of Hindu paradigms of guru-disciple relationship is probably the closest match. Um, she does off- offer darshan daily um, in her ashram. She would have one or two sessions a day.
1: Just a quick question. What language, would, what language would the mantras be in?
0: Uh, the Mantras are Sanskrit mantras. I mean, unless they come from the Guru Granth Sahib. Yeah. yeah. She gives mantras. And, and Sanskrit mantras that aren't so dissimilar to mantras that other gurus. Also, are giving um, short um, mantras that can be repeated with the breath and meditation, oftentimes. But she also will have, um, and you know, the ashram schedule and the different sadhana that's practiced at different times of day is all you know, changes according to season and years and so forth. But when I was doing research, there was also all there was always a mantra japa session um, in the evenings, and so. People were chanting the um, Ritun Jaya mantra um, to Shiva at one point, um, the Gayatri mantra at other times. So, these, I mean, so, yes, there, there are a lot. There's lots there to please Hindu followers and also a lot of practices from Hindu tradition that she finds um, important and and worth using in her in her setting, even though she doesn't identify as, as Hindu. Um, There's a temple in the ashram. The temple is kind of interesting and um, a little bit eclectic. It doesn't necessarily identify, it doesn't look identifiable as a Hindu temple necessarily. It looks a little bit more like Gurdwara um, architecture, but inside there is a large murti of Shiva as Yogeshwar, um, as the Lord of Yoga, uh, and there's also a Durga next to him. But then above Shiva on the wall is a large painting of her guru who um, was a Nir- Nirmala Sikh.
1: So that's, that's uh, I, I find this utterly fascinating.
0: Oh, and then Buddha sketched on the, out. The, okay, the ashram is like an octagonal shape. And so each of the eight, um, you know, glass panels has a buddha sketched on it too
1: <laughs> if i'm not mistaken um i was at an, an ar meeting in, in 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 california a few years ago uh self-realization fellowship i believe is the movement started by uh, yogananda if mm-hmm. i'm not mistaken and at in their religious spaces you'll have a murti of a Hindu deity, you'll have a, a murti of, of of the Buddha, and also of Christ. So it's, yeah. the, the syncretism is, is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, while obviously, you know, if 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 Guru Mahal doesn't identify as religion because she is beyond what we would call religion or 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 a practice, right. obviously. She'll get into argument from from either of us. Nevertheless, it sounds to me, given the fact that there's a temple with a Murti to Shiva and Urga and his initiation in Sanskrit um, uh, mantras for uh, for spiritual processing, it sounds like there's a good many Hindu practices and methodologies being used. Now, I I would wonder also if there are practices from, say, Sikhism in her path. Or even Christianity?
0: Um, I wouldn't necessarily say Christianity. I haven't, I haven't seen that, but that, but that may come into play at some point. Um, I'd say around, was it around 10 years ago, 15 years ago, she discovered Rumi and she had already been well-versed in Punjabi Sufi poets and their songs. She'd been singing those for many years. Um, But when she discovered Rumi, she got very interested in Rumi and she actually took a trip to Turkey. And, um, <laughs> and with, and practice with the mid I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But, um, so she brought some of those practices back on, um, and then she held a big event in Delhi where she brought whirling dervishes from Turkey to Delhi for, you know, it was like a celebration of Rumi's 500 years or something. I can't remember, but, and brought them to the stage. Um, and she sat on the stage with them as they whirled. Um, and then she continued for at least a year singing, um, singing some of Rumi's songs, and she made a claim to be the first person to translate Rumi into Hindi language. I don't know if that's true or not. I never checked to see if others had, had translated Rumi into Hindi, but she translated some Rumi into Hindi, I presume from the English. Um, and... And she also gives her devotees. So this, and here's the thing when, so yes, she does operate in this Hindu paradigm mostly, but she also will give six, the Mool Mantra as a, as a, you know, as their mantra. And she encourages all of her, all of her people to learn it. Like, you know, she put out a DVD of the Mool or CD of the Mool Mantra chanted 108 times, you know, so that people can learn it and chant it. In repetition, as one might a, a Hindu mantra, and um, she also has put out CDs that um, for her disciples to learn the practice of um, of chanting who um, the Sufi a Sufi mantra, or as she refers to it as a Sufi mantra. So yes, yeah, she does. I would say, you know, I when she discovers something she thinks might help her people, at least this is how she puts it. Um, then she offers that. So she offers a plethora of things, but she also will in some ways make her listeners uncomfortable. You know, if they have come because they heard a song of her, they heard her singing songs about Shiva and on a, on a CD or something, and they've come to her ashram, she will make them chant something from the Sufi tradition or something from the Sikh tradition. So she makes people actually Think outside of their own religious boundaries, um, but it, it this religious boundary thing is interesting. One time, I was sitting in her audience, and there were maybe three hundred and fifty people. Um, this was like on a weekend in the ashram, so a lot of people had come for Sunday darshan. And um, in this crowd, she looks at me and she nods at me and she says, "Angela, what do you want to know today?" <laughs> and, and I, you know, I feel. I had already been put in this position many times with her. So I had started to keep questions for her in the back of my field work notebook, you know, from like going from back to front, just keeping ready questions for the guru. At this point, though, 350 people, I was so nervous about it. So she said, surely you have something written in that book. Just tear out a page and send it up with, you know, one of my savings. So I tore out a page and I handed it to one of her people who takes it up to her. And the question was, I know that you refuse to identify as Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, Christian, or Buddhist or whatever. But what about those disciples of yours? You know, do they identify with particular faith traditions? And what do they think of you if they do? You know, and so... (laughs) She looks at the question and and she just laughed at me publicly in front of this large group of people and she said, "Um you won't put me in any box and then she looks at me and she says, "I'll be watching you um, so it was Yeah. So it was interesting. So I have actually, you know, given the amount of access that I had with her, which was much more than I had ever expected, you know, prior to field work, I didn't expect her to speak with me personally at all or um, anything like that. And, and so I had to ask myself, this is one of the ways that the research really changed after field work like, you know, I have to go with it, right? If this guru is going to invite me to go somewhere with her or invite me to ask questions publicly and these sort of things, I just need to take that seriously. And so, and also take her own words about what she says about herself seriously. Um, At the same time, I just always had this tension between my academic self that wanted to categorize her. (laughs) and wanted to, I mean, I didn't necessarily need to put her in a box, but I wanted to understand the context from which she was coming And And what really made the most sense to me after um, more exposure to her media and really listening to what she said and what she's saying, um, I, I do place her in the, in the Sun tradition, in the North Indian Sun tradition as sort of a contemporary um, example of how this tradition continues to live on. And that was also a tradition in which many of the teachers de emphasize their religious belonging. Um, so I, I'm thinking particularly Kabir and Nanak, but well.
1: The um, tension you raise between attending, attending her talks or her events as a scholar of religion versus just an individual person, or as a devotee, or as a sevika, or as, a, as an aspirant. This is a really important tension um, that I think pervades and perhaps even plagues our discipline, mm-hmm. in that when one goes to a symphony um, with a score in one's hand, trying to read and understand the complex structure of the symphony, there's a certain level of analysis and appreciation. Um, which is not tantamount to losing oneself in the symphony and then reflecting mm-hmm. on it after the transformative power of, of being moved by the phrases. So, you know, this tension is ongoing. Um, uh, so it's really interesting to hear you, hear, you, hear you be upfront with wrestling with, well, you know, I want to understand what you're doing. And part of, uh, part of my attempt to understand what you're doing towards <laughs> your ability to do it fully. With me anyways, and so it's fascinating, and also one could either say so well she's uh, she's very clever, and folks like her are very clever because they don't want to be pinned down because who wants to alienate uh, a, a portion of one's following you know surely, if there was a, a healthy uh, following of uh, eclectic Jewish disciples, surely she would then intone certain sacred Hebrew passages, yeah and surely there would be a CD a DVD, a CD, where, you know, talking about, you know, uh, a certain passage from the Hebrew Bible and and, and the, the, the sacred power thereof. I mean, on the one hand, it's quite smart. Um, it's good business to be cynical. On the other hand, uh, if there is such a thing as spiritual enlightenment, and if it is possible to be, have part of your being beyond a conditioned state, then what she's saying is, I'm beyond the very path that got me here. I'm beyond the Hindu methodologies, the, the Jewish methodologies, the Buddhist methodologies. I'm beyond these conceptions. I'm, I'm beyond. I'm beyond the, Indi- the the religiosity was the raft. The Indian religiosity, the, even mm-hmm. the Hindu religiosity, was the raft. I'm beyond that. If my devotees are sitting on the raft of Hinduism versus Sikhism versus whatever. I'm catering to where they're at, you know. So, so there really is a fascinating tension there. I'd say. Yeah. Um, now, what about this idea of a guru in an ashrama in an ashram? Um, sort of, you think of an ashram as away from the world, uh, yeah. as a place of, uh, for example, one of the things I do is I host retreats, right? For mostly geared towards personal growth work that I do outside of my academic work and the retreat setting is always in a fairly contained natural setting with um, exercises and activities that entail introspection, reflection, integration, um, growth and certainly one wouldn't consider that retreat setting is conducive to to activism for example Mm -hmm. and you know, the idea of being retreating from the world and being engaged in or pushing the envelope of world engagement a la mm-hmm. activism, there's a tension there. And so what have you learned about <laughs> one's ability or inability to to um, engage activism uh, from an ashram setting?
0: This is a good question. I I think, I mean, there, she's certainly not doing something innovative that other gurus haven't done, right? We can think of a Swami Vivekananda's practical Vedanta and other um, teachers who have sort of changed the notion of, you know, otherworldly and this, or challenged the the the, the diametrically opposed otherworldly life and this worldly life, or whatever. But so the, I don't necessarily see that as new. I mean, her activism, I would say comes through um, her speech, what she says, her words, um, and the way that she talks. I mean, and, and I also, I tried to, t- you know, what drew me to her was her NGO to empower girl children through education. That, and That's sort of her language that was on the website, um, to empower the girl child. Um, so that was actually, I would not have found her or even cared to go to her ashram had the activism not been a piece of what she was doing. Um, so that was certainly part of my attraction to her. And I I wondered if others were attracted to her because of that. Um, I don't know that people were necessarily attracted to her because she was educating girls, but they were proud of it. Very, very proud of it. And a number of her followers were enthusiastically repeating a lot of what she says about women's empowerment and and I heard her very publicly say um in different places you know everywhere she would go she would spend about five and whenever she gives public talks in India she'll do five days of public talks and by the last day there's a big like I'd I'd call it a fundraising pitch on the one hand, right, to raise money for this Shakti program. The NGO is called Shakti, um, to raise money for Shakti, which is the girls' education program. But along with that, and she would have some every day, but in that last day, she would spend a whole hour talking about, talking to people in a direct way, like, you, I'm talking to you. You need to get your girls educated. Do not even think about their marriage until they're educated. Let them have a choice in their partners. I mean, and she would just very um, sort of contemporary ways of thinking about um, a young woman's life and, 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 um, and presenting that. And her, her major issue that she speaks out about quite a lot is the child sex ratio in India and the disappearing girls from India and the, and the off balance that this is off giving um, the nation. Um, And so she talks about that quite a lot. Um, So anyway, these are the things that, that attracted to me her, her. I wouldn't say that that activism is necessarily buzzing around the ashram. It's part of what she does and everyone knows she cares about it. She'll sell, um you know sometimes t-shirts designed by girls who are her devotees in the ashram that say um oh females are not emails don't delete them <laughs> and um another shirt that says um on the outside shakti is inside you know so in like inside the wearer so <laughs> she And and she will bring, but this happens once or twice a year. Those girls um, who she is currently funding education for, she brings to the ashram with a chaperone and she has them do some of the sadhana that she has her ashramites and her guests in the ashram do. And she puts the girls through sort of a regimen for a, a weekend of sadhana, learning meditation, learning yogic asana. Um, pranayama
1: and other things like that yeah that's fascinating are there any um are there other examples of contemporary uh female gurus that come to mind in, in full disclosure what comes to mind to me to a to certain extent is uh, so Amma. mm-hmm. Amma's mission, different scale i think from what I can yes. glean slightly different emphasis yes. uh, but you know, are there other female gurus that come to mind as counterpoints?
0: Besides Amma, I mean, I think Umma is who I was thinking about a lot as I designed my project because I was very interested. I had written some early papers about her um, and I was really interested in her activism. So, but I have not, I'm just trying to think. Um, so she's the one I think of. And I, and I believe in, in terms of activism, She sets the standard, really. I mean, I'm not sure that there's another um, Hindu organization that competes with her, aside from the Ramakrishna mission, when it comes to humanitarian aid and other um, social service activities. So I had come from studying that sort of, um, you know, gurus engaged in NGO work and social service when I first met Guru Ma, and I asked her, you know, uh, (laughs) what about the Shakti program and what she thought about her social service. And she said, Oh, you know, that's, you know, that's not, that's not my gig. I'm not a social service guru. So what she said, I'm not a social service guru. I just really care about educating girls. It's my only engagement. Um, And that Shakti program has expanded. It used to just um, educate girls to 12th standard. Now there are scholarships that help, Um, pay for nursing schools and other professional schools and she even has scholarships in college in a couple of colleges one is the college she actually went to in Amritsar Um, so I don't know I mean I what I think that seems to me that stands that makes Guru Ma stand out among female gurus in, in different ways is the way she so strikingly speaks about gender issues and she will not um she doesn't shy away from criticizing what she calls the male caretakers of religion and spirituality who have used their sacred texts to hold women down you know and, and she'll say things that uh, you know you're at thinking the Manushastra when she's talking about some of these things so she um she's very, she speaks very adamantly about how religion has not been good for women. And that Religion is a male bastion that's been used to hold women down. So that I think that's one reason she embraces the term spirituality more than religion and has something to do with why she refuses to be in, put in a box. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure that really answers your question about other female gurus. But so her strident language is one thing that I think sets her apart. Another thing that sets her apart, at least from female gurus who have been explored and written about, is that she doesn't present herself, nor do her disciples present her as an avatar. So she's not an avatar guru. She's a real, a real woman. <laughs> in other words, at like one point she looked at me and she said, if I can become a Buddha, why can't you? Um, and I found that, um, and I thought about this a lot you know, and I don't, and a lot of women look at her and they, and she also kind of speaks from this sort of exceptionalism stance too, where she is at a higher level than the rest of us. So that's there. And people certainly look at her that way. But then now and then she comes right back to this. I'm, I'm just a woman like you, you know, if I can be a Buddha, why can't you?
1: So would you say she presents herself as an individual who has attained enlightenment, and can be a model for other individuals also seeking enlightenment.
0: Yes, I think she does. I, my impression is that that's how she most often presents herself. Sometimes her narratives, you know, have that mode of exceptionalism in, to them or that nature of exceptionalism. But most of the part, I feel like she does hold herself as a model. And um, one, one way that you can think about this, she, she actually produced a music video um, for her Shakti girls, and in um, one of her songs that's called "Suno Suno," listen, listen, and uh, or or listen. And um, in this video, it, it's interesting to me. She made it for the girls who she brings to the ashram, but she also made it to use as a fundraising piece for people who would give to the Shakti program. Um, But she shows a number of women in this, lots of cuts of women who are doing things, like a woman who's an engineer, a woman who's a police officer, a woman who's in the army, a young girl playing basketball, a woman who's taking care of her daughter. Um, So you see women in lots and lots of different roles. And in this song, she very clearly, or at least the poetic narrative voice, very clearly identifies as Shakti. So this title, Shakti's New Voice, I didn't just, you know, make that up necessarily. She definitely identifies with Shakti. And then this whole idea of the power of her voice um, as an attractive force um, is kind of what brought those together for me. But she, um, yeah, I can't remember where we started with this question now.
1: Oh, this is, uh, it's a journey, right? This is uh... (laughs) a this is uh, the point isn't to gather information uh, the point is to see see huh. questions are are issued so as to spawn discussion and if you forgot how we got there that's probably a good thing
0: okay good. Um, uh
1: so what i was um what i was um what i was riffing on was the, the extent to which she uh represents tradition versus innovation and also the extent to which she is typical of um versus separate from um contemporary female gurus and i I think i think a lot of content has come out
0: right uh, and there is one more thing i would like to add to that that i think in some ways sets her apart she goes by the name guru ma um so the ma is there some people call her ma and some people call her mother but that guru is first and it's not Mata this or Mata that or Ma this, it's Guru Ma. And she definitely, to me, in my opinion, does not exhibit the maternality uh, or the maternal sort of persona that many female gurus, particularly Mata Nandamai, um, exhibit, right? Um, she's not... Uh, I mean, people appreciate her beauty. People do appreciate that she's a woman in some ways, for sure. But she definitely sometimes takes that role of a taskmaster. And, you know, you read these stories, you know, there are the gurus who are very kind, and then there's the guru who's going to throw a stick at you to teach you a lesson or whatever. And she's more the latter. <laughs> she's, um, she's tough on people, and I got to see that a lot. Um, not necessarily nurturing a maternal as we think, I, I think in the Indian context of female gurus,
1: she's a tough love ma.
0: She is, yes.
1: That's fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, what was it like being around her? I mean, what did you what did you make of her as a figure, as a presence? Uh, you, you know, um, I don't want to lead you. It's not. I don't have an agenda in asking that. But. Mm-hmm. but uh, uh, what struck you about her, or if anything struck you about her? What was the like thing around her? What did, you, what did you make of her when you, when you didn't have your notebook in your hand?
0: <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, she's a little bit intimidating. Um, she's a little bit intimidating, but at, I felt sort of a general benevolence from her. You know, so there was part of me that thought, oh, this glossy website, you know new age guru. Is she for real? Is she not for real? <laughs> Those kind of questions are always in one's mind. And I felt like in some ways I was always on my A game, making sure that I had my eyes open, um, about everything around me. But it, you know, at the end of the day, I liked her. I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed being in her presence. Um, you know, I maybe part of that she acknowledged me right away. You know, with the oh, Angela, what do you want to know today? That started in the very beginning, and um, and and it certainly made me think about the type of questions I would ask her um, and so forth. So yeah, I guess I in general <laughs> I really enjoyed being with her, and um, yeah, I never thought of her as my guru, but I. Um, but I felt she was benevolent, and I liked her. So I guess that's all I can say.
1: <laughs> well, uh, from what I can glean just from her, her image or the images I've seen in the book, is that she certainly has a presence, right? So yeah. I'm a bit of a people watcher. I can, I, honestly, I, I joke about this all the time. I have no idea how I didn't do an ethnographic project. I mean it never occurred to me to get credit for that until my master's because when I'm on on the subway in Toronto I can't help myself I'm studying people all day yeah yeah. whenever I'm in public and so from what I can glean from just her picture she has a presence like oh absolutely you know she could be in in um, civilian clothing with grocery bags but if she walked onto a streetcar you you know Yes. You, you, yes. It should get your attention.
0: She, she does have a powerful personal presence. And she's a she's a, um, a tall woman and she's strong. Um, and one of her devotees said, you know, when she walks into a room, as if, as if Gobind, Guru Gobind Singh walked into the room himself. Like she has that kind of powerful presence, um, which, yeah, I actually... I actually saw this, there was one incident where I was doing the um, morning asana. And I would note that all of these were, I I was told when I got to the ashram, these were compulsory activities. So anytime I missed anything, I felt horrible, you know, because they were compulsory. So anyway, I'd be in, I was in the morning asana session in this sidearm plank pose. And (laughs) I guess as everyone was, and, and suddenly it was like, The whole room, there was just this sudden hush in the room as if everyone in the room had just, (gasps) you know, like taken a breath in and, um, and I didn't realize what had happened, but like, I look up and there she is standing right in front of me, you know, but you know, the, the whole room does change when she walks in part. And I never understood completely is this because she walks in and she brings this powerful presence or is it because of the expectations of everyone in the room who has this relationship with her. So when she comes in, it's like, oh you
1: know, (laughs) this is something I've, I've uh, reflected on a great deal over the years, engaging all kinds of people at the academy, uh, private sector, one-on-one. And obviously much of, much of, of someone's presence will be socially crafted. A uniform is a great example. There's something stately and attractive about a uniform, and people look good in uniform. A physique is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Roman Catholic regalia. My goodness, you know, if you're paying attention, you know, this is the grandeur of God, and in, 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 you know, um, you know, so much of it's socially crafted, and yet, you know, I've seen time and time again that although it scientifically evades us, a charisma is uh, an aura, uh, a field of energy, is not a concept. It's palpable. Right, people that have a palpable field of energy about them that will attract your attention you know um a few feet away and she strikes me as one such person and and that's why that's part of why i'm asking because she obviously has quite a presence and then you 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 you, um tack onto that the importance placed onto her as the emissary of the divine for her devotees and you And you inter- you you intermix that with 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 gorgeous garb and 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 I haven't heard her voice, but maybe I should since the book's called <laughs> "She's New Voice." I should hear her voice.
0: <laughs> she loves to sing. She she's put out a lot of music and you know, um, guide, DVDs to guide meditation and or CDs to guide meditation and guide mantra repetition. And a lot of her people really are attracted to that. Like they want to learn mantras and. And so they can learn them through these CDs.
1: But so, the, sorry, go on.
0: No, no, that was oh. going to take us back to the present. So, so I have, I
1: have a, a quick question, and then um, so tell us uh, roughly, if you can, the percentage of male to female discipleship, um, and even if it's just approximate, like half, mm-hmm. three quarters, and what's your sense?
0: Um. Well, my sense, if I base that sense on. Um, large public programs and, and, you know, granted, not everyone who comes to a large public program because they've seen a billboard in their town is a devotee, but they're listeners anyway. Right. So if I look at her listening, her physical listening office on audience in places I went in India, the women always outnumbered the men. Um, What percentage would it have been? Maybe 60, 40 or 65 percent women or something So not a giant majority but then at the same time from other studies i've read it seems that women outnumber men in a lot of religious settings in india um and in guru's audiences as well
1: what about among the the ashramites as they call themselves
0: yes um i would say more women more women than men for sure um in fact, I, think, I, I often wondered, like, you know, sometimes people who wanted to be ashramites would be rejected, right? She would just reject them and say, no, this is, I know more than you do about what you need. This is not what you need, you know, and send them away. Um, but I don't think I ever saw a male rejected. And part of me wondered, is that because they need more men here in the ashram to do physical labor? I don't know. <laughs> but it did seem to me like there were not a lot of, um, not as many men in the ashram for sure, but um, but uh, yeah, but uh, so more women than men, maybe more in that percentage, like 70, 30 or 65,
1: 35. So you mentioned um, uh, Guruma's voice, um, and you're talking about that some of the draws that folks are looking for for mantras more than a spiritual teacher, and they end up finding her because. She teaches or she offers instruction on mantras. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I think some people are attracted to that, um, particularly if they're searching YouTube and they want to learn the Gayatri mantra or something like that. So they're definitely yes. If you're interested in that or if you're interested in meditation guiding, you know, people would find her searching those things. People could find her on the internet.
1: Now, do you there was mention in your book, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, the Guru Gita and this being a yeah. text of the path and it just brought back so many, many memories. Um, Oh, for, I don't know, seven, 10 years, I went to live talks in Toronto. This is, um, probably throughout my master's and, uh, probably my bachelor's and master's years. Um, and, uh, the Guru Gita, uh, it was a yoga studio. There was a, a teacher who came to, to share his wisdom there and, and, uh, Part of that, I think it was a traditional Indian guru, I should mention, mm-hmm. part of that path um, was looking uh, at and intoning the Guru Gita. So could you tell me a little bit about their use of that text and, 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 and the, the, what seems to be the primacy of that text in, in yeah. this
0: tradition? So some of the you know, the songs that are sung at morning arthi and evening arthi have bits of the Guru Gita in them. But this, um, her organization, at least when I've been in the, um, you know, when I was doing my research, she was not prescribing the Guru Gita, you know, like, let's say the Siddha Yoga movement has prescribed it, followers should um, chant the Guru Gita every morning. So there was, I never heard her prescribing this as something people needed to learn. But people were asking about it. And just as people asked about the Bhagavad Gita and said, oh, Guru Maji Singh, please give us talks on Bhagavad Gita. And so she did that. And oh, gosh, it's like a two volume book of all of her talks. And it's also um, maybe 80 or 90 episodes. Um, and sometime after she had talked about the Bhagavad Gita, um, some of her devotees also asked her to talk about the Guru Gita. So she did a set of talks on the Guru Gita. But what I found really interesting is when she talked about the Guru Gita, she would bring in sunt voices to exacerbate like her points, to bring her points forward. And even stories from Gwynval, I mean, like from the Sikh gurus and um, the devotion between, you know, the guru and who he would name as his successor and those kind of stories, um, which I thought was a really lovely way to teach this Hindu text. And she would also bring in stories of Shah, Punjabi Sufi, Sufi saint, um, and talk about Shah and his guru devotion to his guru. So, you know, she in the context of talking about guru devotion would bring in examples of all kinds of things. And she would even sometimes bring, um, into some conversations, stories of Jesus and his disciples. So, yeah. And then, so I think in some ways what she does is she, is, she wants to teach the Sanskrit text and she'll sing, the, she'll sing verses of the Guru Gita in Sanskrit, but then she very quickly switches into Hindi language and, and very clear Hindi language that's not replete with lots and lots of Sanskrit terms. Um, but more what her disciples would call plain language. You know she speaks in plain language. that's why we like her. <laughs> um, and and then teach the teachings in plain language. And she at the same time, she would always and she would use those suts and she would talk about charandas. You know, when he taught his his disciples, he was teaching the same thing that Shiva taught Parvati in the Guru Gita. But he did it in Hindi language so his audience could understand, you know. And so now she's, um, so she sees herself and in some ways as, a, as an inheritor, I think, of that tradition.
1: She strikes me as a, a, a masterful innovator. She takes innovation to its extreme, but I, I don't really perceive her as breaking away, despite her claims of not identifying with. Right. I, I really, it's, there's a, there's a, a massive tension there. But I really see her as 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 greatly innovating what we would call Hindu religiosity versus breaking away from it. Would would you would you agree with that assessment or is, do you have a different perspective?
0: Um, I do agree with it, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily say Hindu religiosity is Indic religiosity, you know, because she even will sometimes say, you know, the Hindu Rishis, they weren't calling themselves Hindus. <laughs> And and you know, so she doesn't call herself that, but at the same time, she teaches that wisdom. So, yeah, I yeah, but I think you're right in that. I mean, I'm glad you come to this conclusion because I think that's the conclusion that that I come to in the book is that, you know, she is innovative, but she's innovating within the tradition of like Hindustani religiosity for the most part.
1: This is such a I mean, this is a core issue in so many of the circles I've traveled over the years. For example, there, there are yoga circuits in Toronto that are all about the asanas. It's the modern yoga movement, and there are yoga studios in Toronto that really want to give a sense of the philosophy or, 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 or asana as one of the, the limbs of Ashtanga, for example. Yes. Um, and there, there are these various different eclectic movements that use and appropriate and honor Indic religiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it seems to me, time and time again, that no matter how innovative a a movement or a practice uh, may become, it strikes me as what anchors the tradition are the eyes of the guru. Uh, is 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 the embodiment of a principle that can understand how much is too much or how far is too far away. And it's it's really interesting that as innovative as a paradigm is. You know, she is the guru, and she is the arbiter of of what's wisdom and and, and what innovative uh, what innovations wisdom versus what innovation is uh, sacrilege or or just um, uh, rebellion. Yes, and so so the presence of a living guru seems to be, for me, in many ways, the hallmark of um, eclectic Indian religiosity and spirituality that's still is considered, um, orthodox is too, too, too hard a word, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think you get the idea of what I'm saying, that, that tradition, 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 tradition.
0: It right. is a tradition, right? Guru, and that's where I, pl- you know, I place her in the Guru Bhakti tradition, right? She's very, she, you know, maybe she's not Hindu, maybe she's not Sikh or Muslim or Christian, um, or Jain or Buddhist, but she is, um, she is a guru and she is, very much embedded in the particular setting from which she came. You know, in North India, Punjab, um, Haryana, and and um, yeah, and, and she is following a tradition of other innovators, if you wanna put it that way, right? I mean, the, the gurus or the forebears who she seems to look up to and sing the songs of, those are also people who crossed boundaries oftentimes, and, um, and were innovators. Um,
1: and they were, they were all innovating based on what they perceived to be their inner guidance that was inextricable from their their enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. The, the idea that, this idea that, the the, the, that the, the the authority comes from the enlightened status of, of the preceptor. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this seems to me to be a, maybe not uniquely but a, a particularly indic idea that yeah. the, the, that the enlightened teacher actually holds the power uh to 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 critique the vedas because they understand something the vedas didn't understand for example yeah. 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 um wh- what are you working on now what's what's
0: next <laughs> i knew you were gonna ask that so um yeah, I'm I'm continuing. I'm going to give you this as vaguely as I can, because <laughs> I'm not fully ready to talk about um, my new projects yet. But I am continuing to think about religious authority and gender. Um, I've become really interested in some other saints who are women in the in Punjab, uh, but they're more localized. They aren't Maha gurus or people who have this large internet presence or even any kind of presence outside of their local, um, setting. So I am, I'm interested in looking at local female gurus or female, but, but many of them don't go by guru. They go by sunt. And, um, yeah, so, and, and I'm interested too, in in continuing to see how, how relevant this sort of, you know, we hear a lot in the American and Canadian context, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And this is something that in a sense we I was hearing from Guruma, who embraces this term that you know we scholars have criticized as being so vague, as spirituality, as something that has to do with the spirit or the Atma. Um, and and so I'm interested to continue to learn more about how people in contemporary in the contemporary setting are kind of embracing that term spirituality. So and and maybe kind of take forcing myself to take this term more seriously. <laughs>
1: so now you have to tell us about taking that term more seriously, because I think there will be a number of listeners who are like, um, who roll their eyes and are like, oh my God, yes, I know what you mean. And yeah. then maybe listeners will, or like, well, what do you, what, what's it? What do you, right. uh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. So right. there's obviously the attention. So say a little bit more about that.
0: Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times I'd hear people say adyatmic. um, yeah. I mean, it's the idea when I, when I would hear people in the context of my uh, research with Guru Ma talk about spirituality, it wasn't some like sort of fluffy new age. I'll pick from here. I'll pick from there. Even though there's a little of that eclectic um, choosing of practices and that sort of thing. But, it, but the reason they were embracing the term was because it had to do with spirit and spirit and Atma and the understanding of the Atma then the wanting to know um, the self, so that, or, or spirit. And so I found that, I, I find that interesting. I But I don't know, I don't, I wouldn't say my project will focus on that, but that's just something I'm interested in seeing how far that, that goes.
1: Well, you'll have to circle back with whatever else you trip <laughs> out in coming years. Um, so um, is there anything else that you want to touch on that we didn't today?
0: No, I mean, I, yeah, I, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that we're good. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Well,
1: I've enjoyed it as well. And and I trust so, so have our listeners. Um, once again, I'm speaking with Dr. Angela Rudert, who is a visiting assistant professor at, colgate university in the department of religion we've been talking about her new book shakti's new voice guru devotion in a woman-led spiritual movement i'm your host dr raj balkran here on new books in hindu studies um you can find out about my work if you're interested at uh, rajbalkran.com uh, until next time keep reading bye